This, uh, this thing only has one switch, but I was sure that I was going to flub it. Um, I'm really bad with technology, and I thought that I'd do something wrong. So I'm glad I got through that part. <laughs> um, go ahead and open your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Matthew chapter 3. In a minute, I'll be reading um, verses 1 through 12. But before we do that, I'd like you to uh, remember back with me to the uh, 2008 Summer Olympic Games. In those games, Michael Phelps um, won a record eight gold medals in swimming. So he captured the patriotism and the sports imagination of this entire country. Kids who had previously thought of competitive swimming maybe as kind of a nerdy activity, not something they would aspire to, these same kids back then, they were measuring their wingspans, and they were kind of trying to see how they would ma could match up or measure up. They, uh, you know, they, they thought to themselves, you know, if I start training right now, if I start right now, maybe I'll have a chance to win gold in 2012 or 2016. Um, as for Phelps, he was riding a wave of public pride and support. But all of that went away. During the months leading up to the next Olympics, to the London Games back in 2012, he barely trained at all. He would later tell Bob Costas in an interview, I took some wrong turns and found myself in the darkest place you could ever imagine. After all the hype had faded away, Phelps became clinically depressed. Now, this is not going to be a sermon on depression. That's a very real issue, and we recently heard a sermon about it. Nor is this going to be about the evils of marijuana use or the fickleness of fair weather fans. This is about how the gospel moves everything in a certain direction. The gospel is powerful. And throughout all that has taken place since the coming of Christ into the world, it has continued under the power of the Holy Spirit to expand the kingdom of God. Many of you may be feeling something like what Phelps felt. After Christmas, there's often a let, feeling of letdown, just like after the Olympics. There's often a feeling of letdown, and this, you know, this, uh, this pattern of Olympic athletes becoming depressed after winning is a pretty common one. But after Christmas, there's a common, um, there's a common letdown as well sometimes. In the case of Phelps, it, the letdown had severe, had severe results. This is because with holidays and other events, there's a, there's a continuous building up to the event. And then sometimes we get the feeling that there's nowhere to go from there. Um, the difference is the Olympics aren't part of a bigger story. They are an end into themselves. The gold medal is an end unto itself. After that, there's nowhere to go. But with Christmas, it's different. This is not the case with Christmas. The incarnation of Christ, the event we commemorate at Christmas, is one episode, albeit a central episode, in a story that stretches way back and is ongoing today. So, in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, the story of Christ's birth and childhood is followed up almost immediately by the story of John the Baptist. And in Matthew and John, I'm sorry, in Mark and John, yes, in Mark and John, um, they don't even include really a nativity or a a Christmas story, although John has kind of a nativity in theological terms. They go straight to the story and the message of John the Baptist. That's the next thing after Christmas, at the beginning of their Gospels. That is because the whole point of the ministry of John the Baptist 
was to prepare people's hearts for the ministry of our Lord. Just as his baptism prepared the way for the baptism that we practice today, the baptism that we saw demonstrated right here last week, and we heard about that. Um, Maybe the best place for us to start as well as we move forward from the event of Christmas and we seek to live as followers of Jesus Christ in this world, maybe the best place for us to start is there as well. So I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey, Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees, therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. And I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is the word of God. I want to focus in on that part of John's sermon contained in verses 10 through 12. The first place, the first uh, phrase that I want to look at is in verse 10. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Wow. I know this may be a bit of a shock to the system. We've spent the last month or more looking at pictures of uh, sweet baby Jesus or jolly old Saint Nick and all of his happy bounciness. Um, And now we're confronted with these images of destruction. But the first thing I want to point out is that at this point in the story, the trees are still standing. The axe has not been swung yet. John preaches his message of impending doom during a time of God's patience. Make no mistake, what he is driving at is that destruction is imminent. The judgment of God is imminent. But the undergirding fact that John is able to speak these words and that his hearers are able to stand there and listen is testimony to God's patience. The image here is of an orchard keeper who is preparing to completely clear away um, his, his orchard of the trees that aren't producing, but he is waiting. So th- this point is laid out explicitly in the parable in uh, Luke chapter 13. We can turn over there real quick. Um, Luke 13, 6 through 9. 
So this is Jesus telling the parable, kind of expanding on this, this metaphor a little bit. And he began telling this parable, a man had a fig tree which had been planted in a vineyard, in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir. For this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. God is patient. The thing about his patience, though, is that it is a strategic patience. At this point in the history of the people of God, the people of Israel, with their traditions and their temple, they were living in an era of strategic patience. You may have heard that phrase on the news <coughs> um, lately, the era of strategic patience. It may be more to the Roundtrees and to the Randolphs than it does to most, most, most of the rest of us. Um, the leaders of our country have been repeating it in regards to North Korea. It describes the attitude of the past several administrations, uh, presidential administrations, um, who decided that it was, it was good to put up with the inflammatory rhetoric and the actions of the Kim regime while working toward resolution of the conflict. If you have heard that phrase, era of strategic patience, you have probably also heard that it is over. By this, our leaders apparently mean that they are raising the level of economic and rhetorical antagonism toward the regime in North Korea. In my own opinion, an era of strategic patience does not end until there is either reconciliation or war. So it is with God's patience anyway. His patience end ends when either he redeems or when he rains down fiery judgment. What those politicians are driving at is that the status quo is not meant to last forever. Like the incarnation itself, God's patience has a direction. It was then, and it is now, moving things forward. So how do we respond to the knowledge that God is acting in patience toward the world? What's our response? Well, the first response is simply to recognize it. Recognize God's patience. When you see the evil in the world around you, when you see evil in your family members and your friends, when you see evil in your own life, recognize and believe that it is not because God is powerless. It is not because God is blind. It is not because God does not care. And it's certainly not because he does not exist. It is because he is being patient with us as human beings. Now, there's obviously a lot more to it than that. Um, I don't have time to go into the problem of the origin of evil and why things are the way they are, etc. That, that would be a topic for another sermon. Suffice it to say that God has the power to end every evil person and every evil pattern in the world today. But he, is, he does not because he is patient. So take comfort in his patience. His patience is a strategic patience, and the era of strategic patience will end. The injustice that you see in the world, the religious bigotry and hypocrisy, God in his justice will do away with that. 
wonder if my kids have been messing with my notes. They're all twisted around. Um, so, God is currently being patient with every human being who is drawing breath. Not every human being will be saved. Sometimes we humans use God's patience to provide time to pursue our own sinful activities. Unless humans repent, by God's grace, his strategic patience will end in wrath. All of this is from Romans 2, 1 through 8. I'm going to read that. You can flip over there and read with me if you'd like. Romans 2, chapter 1 through 8. I'm sorry, Romans 2, verse 1 through 8. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same thing yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each according, person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. So particularly right there in, the, in verse 5, you are storing up wrath. That is how some use the patience of God. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. God's wrath is never poured out specifically on the believer, and it will not be. But God saves us from his wrath by granting us belief and repentance. The image of the fire of God in Scripture, how it's used throughout Scripture, is used in two distinct senses. The fire of God both destroys and it purifies. It destroys and it purifies. John himself, when he's preaching these words, was the last in a long line of Old Testament fire and brimstone preachers who proclaimed the wrath of God on the nations that oppressed Israel and on the unrepentant within Israel. The primary objects of this wrath in our text, back here in Matthew 3, are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It says up in verse 7 that many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming for baptism. And what follows is directed at them. So it was a big deal with the Pharisees. What was so wrong with them? Well, do you remember last week in Dr. Roundtree's sermon, he was talking about how the, the Apostle Paul called himself the chief of sinners? Remember that? Remember how he really was the chief of sinners? Do you remember what he boasted of in Philippians 3? What he had to boast of in his past in Philippians 3? He was, among other things, as to the law, a Pharisee. The thing about Pharisees is that rather than seeing the law as a guide to God's will for their lives, they saw it as a way to manipulate God's favor and exclude others from God's grace. They taught that they would be true children of Abraham and heirs of the blessings 
that God had promised Abraham so long as they kept the law. To this end, they made rules that were stricter than the law so that they could never even come close to breaking it, to accidentally breaking it. Once those rules were in place, human nature kicked in all the more. That is how human, the sinful heart works. It takes something that is good and life-giving, like the law, and it twists it and perverts it until it becomes not only a monster, it becomes all there is. There is no life outside of this twisted version of the law for the Pharisee. And the mission of God is lost. God's care for his creation, and especially for the people who he created to rule over his creation, all of that is forgotten. God's care for people who are not able to exercise dominion because of their physical needs um, or because of their, their social estrangement, all that's forgotten. That care is forgotten. Love for the, outside and the outsider and the needy evaporates. That is how Paul became the chief of sinners. He used God's grace and God's word to harden his own heart, and he became a worse sinner than he could have possibly been had he never known the grace of God's word to begin with. These are the ones for whom the fire of God means destruction. If they do not repent, they will be destroyed. Now, thankfully, Paul did repent. And though he still did some of the things that he did not wish to do, God used him mightily to grow his church across the Roman Empire and to uh, to write so much of the New Testament. Many of Paul's religious peers did not repent. And for them, perhaps judgment began with the destruction of their city and their temple with fire. So the fire of God is described in Scripture, as it is described in Scripture, destroys. Fire from God is also described as purifying. And the image there is of a forge where all of the... Um, the impurities are burned out of the precious metal, and all that is left is what has value. Um, in verse 11, this is from verse 11. Uh, yeah, the second half of verse 11, where it says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This is the purifying work of God. That image of fire is used for purity. Sometimes this process of purification is not painful. Um, it is not an ordeal. In Acts 2, 3, there's this image of the apostles at, and the, the disciples at Pentecost, and tongues of fire come down on their heads. They're baptized in that. And the Holy Spirit there is visually represented as doing his purifying work and maybe his illuminating work. Many of us have had the experience of God taking some sin out of our lives without us even trying to, or even really thinking about it, without us forcing ourselves, removing its presence from our lives. We are simply moved to do these things, do the things we once did not want to do, and we are moved not to do the things we once did want to do by the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit's work, purifying and removing sin from our lives. Other times, the fire is an ordeal. We heard um, a few weeks ago from Psalm 66. I'll read a short portion of that um, to remind us. Let's see, Psalm 66 
and um, starting in verse 8. Bless our God, O peoples, and sound his praise abroad who keeps us in life and does not allow our feet to slip. You have tried us, O God. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid an oppressive burden on our loins. You made men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you brought us out into a place of abundance. Sometimes the purifying work of God is an ordeal. It appears in Matthew that John the Baptist had both in mind. When Jesus, in Acts, quotes John, he's, he talks about um, John's prophecy as being fulfilled there in Acts. And in John's own context, he was talking about the fire of God's wrath. When God's wrath is poured out on the evil that is in the world, God's true people often suffer as well. But they come through it purified. So what is the point? Why spend time thinking about all of the nuances of fire as a metaphor? First, if you're a believer and you happen to notice that it's something, there's something good or pure or lovely in your life, recognize that that is the work of God. If you have been able to obey the law of God in some unlikely area, do not see that as you're coming a little bit closer to earning God's favor. Certainly not. Like, that's what the Pharisees did. You cannot earn God's favor any more as a believer than you could as an unbeliever. Your good deeds and thoughts were a gift prepared beforehand by God for your own benefit and the benefit of those you love. If you belong to Christ, believing in him, then you have been purified by the Holy Spirit. And you are continuing to be purified either through ordeals or through the gentle nudging of God. The second takeaway from all of this fire is simply don't trust the system. Don't trust the system. Our economy and the fabric of our society could evaporate in the fiery judgment of God. So don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt, where thieves break in and steal. You do not know what is going to happen to your stuff. So you are free. You're free to give. Give it all away to the church or to those in need. This liberates us. Well, if you have been struggling with the post-Christmas blues, as I started out, everything that I've just said has probably made it worse. So why all the gloom and doom? Parts of this sound more like a Black Sabbath song than like the gospel. It kind of sounds like war pigs. But remember what I said earlier at the very beginning. The gospel has a direction. It is moving things forward and not simply toward an Ozzy Osbourne-esque apocalyptic vision of the future. It is moving things toward a kingdom of goodness and righteousness, justice, and truth. A kingdom where there can be healing, spiritual healing, that pushes toward physical, mental, and emotional healing. A kingdom where there can be abundance, spiritual abundance, that pushes towards physical abundance. Jesus will baptize those listening with the Holy Spirit and with fire. For the unrepentant, the fire will produce the destruction of everything. For the repentant, the fire will burn away sin, leaving them with a life dominated by the Holy Spirit. The imagery used in, down in verse 12 of Matthew 3 is also agricultural, um, just like the image of the fruit trees that we talked about a little while ago. 
In the ancient Near East, and it's, it's actually this way in many parts of the world today as well, Abby saw this, and, and I, Abby and I saw this in our, uh, our honeymoon in Peru. What they would do was after the harvest, they would take all the wheat, and they would gather it together, and they would separate. They would separate um, the heads from the rest of the, of the stalk, and they would separate the chaff from the rest of the grain, so that the, what they had was um, piles of what was useful and piles of what was not useful. They would, after they'd run over it with a sledge, they would take a pitchfork and toss the piles up in the air, toss big forkfuls up of the wheat up into the air so that the chaff could blow away in the wind and the heavier kernels of wheat could fall to the ground. After they did this, um, the farmers would, would rake up the chaff, would rake up the little husks into little piles and burn them. And the farmers would rake up the, uh, the wheat, the good uh, kernels of wheat, now naked, for storage and later use. The whole process was one of separa separating and organizing the useful from the useless. The main difference between this metaphor and the previous metaphor, the metaphor of the trees that we started out with, is that this metaphor focuses in on what happens to that which is not burned. The primary focus is on the good stuff, the wheat, after the separation. It is gathered into a good and safe place. Father's, the farmer's granary or barn. So if you are weighed down by the world around you, by the evil you see, as God's patience endures, or if you are going through fiery trials yourself and your own patience is being tested, or if you are frightened by the prospect of the fire of God's wrath, know this. None of this is the ultimate destiny of the believer in Jesus Christ. The true children of God are to be gathered into a good and safe place. And the whole earth will one day be transformed into a good and safe place where the people of God may prosper. The story of Christ coming to earth at Christmas drives us forward into a story of the kingdom of heaven breaking out into this earth and conforming it to the heavenly reality, a place characterized by the goodness kindness, justice, truth, and the love of God. So hearing all that, where do we go from here? This is point five. Knowing all this, knowing that God is acting in his patience, but that he will redeem and gather, that he will judge and destroy, all through the work of his Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. How do we respond? What are we meant to take away from the big picture? Are we only meant to take comfort? The big picture answer is way back in verse 2. John kicks things off with his application in one single word, and that is repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Incidentally, these are the exact same words used by Christ later on when he begins his ministry in chapter 4, verse 17. After John has thoroughly prepared the way and gets himself arrested and ultimately killed because he spoke the truth of God's law to a man who was powerful enough to do that. Our Lord takes up the call as the starting point of his ministry. Repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we are to repent. But what does that mean? Well, in Scripture, the idea of repentance has an active aspect, and it has a quiet, trusting aspect. And I don't use the word passive, um, because I don't think Scripture ever really calls us as believers to be passive. It's kind of a dirty word. But it has an active aspect and a quiet, trusting aspect. Repentance does. So first, the active aspect. Turn with me, to, um, if you would, to Luke, uh, Luke chapter 3, and I'll, I'll read uh, verses 10 and 11. Luke records a little bit more of, of John's sermons, or sermons, his series of sermons, than Matthew does, um, and he focuses in on, on one specific aspect of repentance. Um, and prior to, to this episode, the crowds who are following John, they're listening to him, they're hearing him call for repentance over and over again, and they're asking, well, well, what do we do? So this is what Luke 3, verse 10 says. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And then after this episode, um, there are some tax collectors and some soldiers who ask specifically what they should do as tax collectors and soldiers in response to John's message. And his answer is basically the same. He says, don't use your position to seek out your own dishonest gain. Use your position to do your duty. That's what he tells them. The idea is that you and I and everyone else are bent toward taking and holding accumulating money or stuff or relational capital to pursue our own ends. That is, the our corrupt, that is the direction our corrupted humanness drives us. And if you are not a believer in Jesus, you have nothing to, con- to counteract that, nothing to confront that, heart, that wickedness in the heart. So we must stop doing that. Turn and start pursuing the kingdom of heaven the love and generous giving of Christ. The question is, how? If in our natural state there is nothing in us to counteract the callous and dishonest desire to pursue self-aggrandizement at the expense of those nearby and those far away in need, how can we possibly turn? The answer is not simply buck up and try harder. That's what the Pharisees did. We've already seen how they became the objects of God's wrath. The answer is quiet trust. So turn with me, one more scripture, and I'll finish with this, to Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. This, is, um, this has been one of my favorite verses of the Bible <laughs> recently. I've been sharing it with a lot of people, so if, if I've already been saying this to you. Forgive me. My, uh, my Sunday school class has heard this already. Um, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest 
you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. If you are an unbeliever, there is no way for you to benefit from any of this unless you come to a place where you are resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you are a believer, there is no way for you to benefit from any of this unless you come to a place where you are resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are only free to give from the heart when Christ is pouring out the riches of his love into our hearts. Trust that all of the things you are tempted to cling to in order to give your life meaning and satisfaction and the feeling of pleasure can go away. Whether it's money or food or sex or the feeling of your own righteousness and aptitude, all of that can go away if you are trusting that Christ really has something better for you in this life and in the next. Christ is the one who gives you repentance. And when you sin, again and again, when you fail, trust that it is only Christ who purifies you anyway. And all of that through the blood of the covenant. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you sent us Christ. I thank you that you have established your covenant with us. I thank you that you have granted us repentance. I do pray, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit to move in our lives, that you would allow us to give freely. I pray that you would give us tender hearts. I pray that you would move us away from religious pride and move us toward the grace and the love of your Son. I pray that that love would be poured out through us into the world around us as we minister, especially in this new year. I pray that you would raise us up to do great work for you as we are quietly resting in the finished work of your Son. In Jesus' name.